You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Good afternoon. Hi, Susan. Happy rain. Happy rain. Yep, we're under flood watch, but that should pass soon. Uh, (laughs) Just wait a minute in Atlanta, and the weather is sure to change. Um, And sometimes it even gets better, so we're really happy about that. Um, Today we're going to talk about a, um, a subject that I think is hopefully pretty interesting to most of our listeners, and that is what to expect from early recovery. And David, to your point, perhaps we ought to define for our listeners what do we mean by early recovery before we start talking about what to expect. Well, so many many patients and family members will show up and, and they will have the expectation that once a person is free of the substance that, that has brought them to treatment, that they are cured and they should be expected to enroll in new classes and mm-hmm. get back to work and start functioning as if there was no problems at all. And, and so when I'm working with family members, I talk to them about, in particular, about the first two years with the first year of recovery really being about learning how to experience life without using um, chemicals, um, going through birthdays, going through holidays, learning how to manage the stress of other people's expectations, learning mm-hmm. how to deal with life without using. The second year is about actually beginning to experience dealing with life, um, beginning to venture out and do things. And and so really I refer to early recovery as the first two years of the recovery process. And I think that would surprise most people. And I think it um, surprises even people that are in early recovery or or (laughs) in recovery because you don't really realize it until you've gotten past it and looking back at it and you go, oh my gosh, that was such a crazy time period. I can't believe those first X number of years, two years, three years. Yeah. and there's so many people who will who will go to AA support groups and meetings, and they will part of AA. They pick up chips to celebrate a month and two months and six months and a year. Um, and a lot of people will get through that year, and then the cravings will be so strong and relapses during that thirteenth month or that twelfth month um, is is so mm-hmm. common because they feel like they should be cured by this point and shouldn't still be having these symptoms. So they just don't really know what to do with them. Well, and I thought it was interesting when you talked about expectations because it's not only expectations from the family and people around you, it's your own expectations or your own trying to play catch up. All of a sudden you're you're feeling better, um mm-hmm. you're you've stopped digging holes, um <laughs> you're kind of, you know, coasting along and you're thinking, "Oh my gosh, all my friends are, you know, five years ahead of me in in reality and I'm still back here and I need to catch up or you want to catch up with your um, going to the gym and and doing all these things and if you have somebody in your early recovery that helps you understand that you have to pace things and that's what is important learning how to slow down take a breath and and move forward in a in a really smart manner. Right, a healthy one. And mm-hmm. I think to your point and part of the confusion people have is that even a month or two 
after stopping their use of substances, physically they feel so much better. People really do feel better. And they're quite surprised uh, when they realize that just that little bit of feeling better after you've gone through a detoxification period is is not the end, is not is it's not almost even the a, beginning. Yes, <laughs> it it's, is. It's just a slow, slow beginning. And most people during that period of time feel like, well, I've got this. Mm-hmm. I figured it out. I feel better. I can manage this. It's not really going to be any big deal. And that's where some of the things that we're going to talk about today, I, I hope, will serve as... Um, not only educational, but also some problem-solving things so that people aren't blindsided and people understand what this process really is and that it's not just being detoxed, it's not just getting through the first year. The first couple of years, even up to the fifth year, can be full of challenges for someone who is um, trying to move to um, a sober life. So uh, the first thing I thought we should talk about is actually detox. For lots of people, they figure that this is all they have to do. Just stop using, have some medical help, or just get through the first week or so of not using And that's all you need to do. Just stop. And the just say no and the just put it down and the just stop messages that our patients often get are very confusing because folks really do believe that's all they have to do is just get through that first little bit of time and it'll all be okay. Mm -hmm. Not the case. It's not the case at all. It's it's a very... um precarious time in terms of just ability to actually stop using, but it's also, depending on the substance, a particularly very, very dangerous time. Um, Part of how we talk about detox is that it's the opposites of whatever the substance was doing for Mm -hmm. you. So for people who were using um, benzodiazepines, Xanax, Valium, um, Clonopin, things that help them to relax, suddenly they do not have the ability to relax. Their brain it feels like it's on fire and it's racing all over the place, and they are at a real risk for having seizures. Um, but even if they don't have that, they have such a level of discomfort that they don't really believe they will ever feel comfortable again. And so if they started using those medications or alcohol or other kinds of um central nervous system depressants, as we technically call them, the um, anxiety that may have gotten them interested in using these particular medications or substances is not only still there, but it's really almost on steroids. It is worse because now you've got the withdrawal symptoms, you have ratcheted up your nervous system so that you are more anxious, have more insomnia than you had even before when you thought it was so terrible and you discovered that some of these medications or alcohol really helped you, at least in the beginning. So this, um, these changes physiologically are really 
significant. And part of what's so confusing for people is this whole idea of the half-life of a medicine. So somebody who's coming off of, of um, benzodiazepines in particular will have the expectation that, okay, you're a week off of this, you should be fine. Whereas for some of those medications, the withdrawal is really just now getting to the dangerous point because the the medication has, takes that long to leave the system. Right. And to drop below with what we would call a therapeutic dose. Um, and we know with those particular medicines, we can actually detect them in the urine for weeks to months afterwards. We, t- we talk a lot about marijuana being that kind of substance that stays in the fat cells, but these medications actually take that long to be metabolized by the liver, and they can also have active metabolites. So just breaking it down and detoxifying the major compound, often many of these medications, something like Valium, can have three or four active metabolites that continue to have an effect in the system. So you're right. People often expect to feel better, and sometimes they do for a little while. But one of the things I was going to say, I'm going to jump in here, is that it wasn't until, you know, learning about the disease of addiction that, that I realized that a lot of times in the beginning, you don't have the ability to feel happiness or to feel, uh, you feel better because you're not feeling as horrible as you were right. before. <laughs> but you don't have that ability to feel happiness and joy and, and things look good. You know, you're down in the very low levels, and you're just kind of walking around, faking it till you make it. And and because you I, literally don't have the chemicals in your brain to be able right. to feel the feeling exactly. So, like in AA, they say you know, fake it till you make it, and you literally have to learn how to fake it a little bit. Not that you're going to learn how, because we're pretty good at faking things when we're in. Yeah, most addicts are already good at faking it. They (laughs) just have to be reminded to do so. Just be reminded that it will get better, but it is a process, and often all of the neurotransmitters that regulate our mood and our ability to feel joy and satisfaction in our life have been depleted because of the drug use. And that creates um, an even more protracted period of... I'm doing all the right things, I'm following all the rules, and yet I still feel pretty bad. Right. And that, that can be a tough place if you're not expecting that. Well, and I think it's also important to note that rarely these days is somebody withdrawing from what just one substance. Right. Because um, they'll have alcohol, plus they'll have some sort of sleep medicine, plus they'll have an abusive level of caffeine and an abusive level of nicotine. And all of those things are having an impact on your brain. And on your withdrawal. And they all have a different type of onset of the withdrawal and some some similar but also some different symptoms. So things may be okay for a little while and then boom, this next one kicks in and boom, this next one kicks in. We, we commonly think about um, probably our most dangerous drugs in withdrawal are alcohol, the benzodiazepines that, that you mentioned, David, and also things like barbiturates, which are not around a lot. The furanols, um, 
some of these medications um, are probably the only ones that are relatively commonly written for, but um, but uh, those have dangerous withdrawals, life-threatening withdrawals. But there are withdrawals from a number of other types of medication that people may not be thinking about. Now, these are not necessarily addictive medications, and they're not necessarily abused medications, but antidepressants also have a withdrawal Mm -hmm. syndrome, and many of the SSRIs can have a significant withdrawal that is very difficult for people to manage. So, um, that uh, with if you forget it, you run out, you don't refill your prescription, then you may have problems. Antipsychotics can have a withdrawal. Marijuana has a withdrawal. There are a number of substances that we don't really think about, and all of these have different timelines and different time frames in which somebody's going to have trouble. So working closely with your recovery team to help you understand what are the symptoms I'm going to feel because they're pretty predictable. Your analogy, David, of the law of opposites is really important. Whatever it did for you when you were actively taking it, the exact opposite is going to happen. So that's in the acute withdrawal. And often people need to be hospitalized or medically managed with um Medications to help them get through that initial uh, initial acute withdrawal. But I had an interesting conversation with a patient who had been hospitalized to manage acute withdrawal, coming off of alcohol, sleep medicine, and uh, benzodiazepines. And he said, while I was there, people started talking about post-acute withdrawal, and it scared me to death. <laughs> so when we come back after this break, we're going to talk about post-acute withdrawal. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and in studio with me today are David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. In our last segment, we talked about uh, what to expect in early recovery. And, David, you define that as the first two years or so of recovery. Um, so I think that um, that's an important detail for people to know. Uh, Michael, you talked about how people do feel better, and so they, they want to start delving into their life full tilt, mm-hmm. and, um, and often this gets them into trouble. One of the things that is unexpected for folks they um, often understand that they're going to have acute withdrawal from some of the substances and even behaviors that they've been engaged in. Uh, try going off sugar, trying not exercising. If you are um, addicted to exercise, and people will find there's a withdrawal from those things too. But many people are surprised to understand that there is something called post-acute withdrawal. It's controversial. There will be people that don't necessarily believe this. And um, at the Can I say something? Yes. The only people that don't believe it are the people that have never gone through it. Have never gone through it. (laughs) Um, We have a little bit different take on post-acute withdrawal at the Atlanta Healing Center that we'll talk about in a minute. But I think it's important for some people to recognize what some of these symptoms may be that may show up days to weeks after they've stopped using um, their substance or behavior of choice and after they've finished taking whatever medications their physician might have given them for for acute detoxification. And some of them are um, have a lot to do with sleep. Mood disorder or mood, mood uh, dysregulation. Dysregulation, like up and down and sideways. Right. Some hostility, anger, um, aggression, panic, even people who have never had much of an anxiety, excuse me, much of an anxiety disorder before may now be having symptoms of anxiety mm-hmm. that they, they are not <clears throat> used to having or don't know how to handle. Um, trouble concentrating, trouble thinking, focusing, a loss of interest in um Things that normally bring them pleasure, a loss of interest in sex is um, a big one for some people, problems with memory, and difficulty dealing with stressful situations that before all of this they might have been stressful, but the person would have been able to handle them pretty easily. Now any kind of bump in the road becomes very difficult and can set off a whole bunch of symptoms. Right, and... I think this is the part where family members, friends, um, loved ones, they this is where they expect things to start 
getting mm-hmm. better. You know, this this early part is over with, and now you should be better. And in in fact, it's really when you're starting to to show signs of this. And but and it's also, I think, a time that it's really, really important to be connected with recovering groups and yes. people that have time in recovery. Because as you were saying, so many of the symptoms that people experience in post-acute withdrawal look like other psychiatric illnesses. And it's not uncommon for people to stop using, and, and especially if they're just doing it by themselves, and then to have all these other symptoms. And then they'll go to their doctor and their GP, and they'll describe these symptoms. And they'll walk out with, with medication and a diagnosis for symptoms that are really a normal part of recovering from substance use disorder. And they may be given medication that compromises their recovery from addiction. So they go in with trouble sleeping and they're given a sleep medication. Or they may report anxiety and they're given um, a benzodiazepine. And when these kinds of things happen... The person will feel better almost immediately and think this is the best thing since sliced bread. The problem is that if this doesn't become their new favorite dopamine releaser of choice, it may um, remind them of the things that really make them feel good and put them back uh, into a craving situation, which is something we're going to talk about in, in a little while. But yes, being in connection with people who are familiar with these kinds of um, the process of recovery, they're familiar with post-acute withdrawal and can talk to the person, remind them, ground them, help them learn some ways of dealing with it that doesn't jeopardize their recovery is really important. So it used to be the classic number one symptom of post-acute withdrawal symptom would be inability to sleep right and patients would come to group and they would talk about i haven't been able to get to sleep i can never sleep at all and and the only answer we could give was in about eight months you'll start sleeping so enjoy your time start reading start relaxing watch the movies and your brain eventually will kick back in in about eight months your sleep will restore itself well and in my home group, they used to say, nobody ever died from lack of sleep. <laughs> Go read your big book. <laughs> of course, we do now know that people can die from lack of sleep, that lots of health problems can develop from lack of sleep. And the first thing I want to talk to the person about is, since you stopped your alcohol or your opioids, how much have you increased your caffeine and nicotine? Because one of the things that adds to the feelings of anxiety, agitation, insomnia is that escalation that we see in the use of these stimulant um, substances that uh, people are trying to feel different. They're trying, their brain wants dopamine, so they may begin to really increase the use of these, mm-hmm. which complicates it. It doesn't cause the post-acute withdrawal, but it can certainly complicate it and complicate their treatment. So that's an imp- important thing. Having... Um, as well as an aspect of, of wanting to be able to connect with people and so having something in your hand and doing what these other people are doing, which is drinking coffee and smoking. Right. As, as their new bonding. Their new social. Substance. Mm-hmm. It's always so um, 
exasperating when when we get somebody that says, oh, I never smoked until I went into detox. Right, (laughs) until I went into treatment. I never smoked before. So the other thing that we do a little bit differently um, at the Atlanta Healing Center is certainly we will intervene with trying to help patients with safe medications and safe strategies to sleep because it really is important for their brain to heal and their body to heal to be able to sleep. And we talk to people a lot about this, Mm -hmm. uh, proper sleep hygiene and so forth, and that's probably another show for another day, but it is really important that we get people stabilized as quickly as we can, as safely as we can, um, and sleeping more normally. The next thing that we see is that many of the symptoms of post-acute withdrawal actually fit very nicely with some of the neuroendocrine dysfunction that we see that's directly related to the persons using drugs and alcohol. What do I mean by that big, long sentence? Some might say, what is it that you mean? (laughs) What is it that you mean? So when you've been actively using a substance... Uh, whether it's by prescription from your doctor, whether it's alcohol, whatever, um, there is an effect on the pituitary gland, a tiny little organ deep inside your brain whose job it is to monitor all of your hormones, your thyroid hormones, the hormones produced by your adrenal glands, the hormones produced by your testes or ovaries. That little tiny organ monitors all of these hormones and if the levels begin to drop it sends out a reminder message please thyroid make more thyroid hormone please ovaries make more estrogen so these hormones are released and that feedback loop is um, is complete if the levels rise then the pituitary will back off a little bit. That's in a normal situation. When someone has been using substances that are addictive, that release dopamine, there is an effect. Even people who are taking pain medicine, taking it properly, taking it as per the doctor's instruction, not taking too much, using it the way it's supposed to be, like swallowing it, not snorting it or injecting it, taking it in a normal way, there will still be this suppression of the pituitary. It just tells the pituitary to go on vacation, and the pituitary stops doing its job and stops sending out these hormones. So if you just for fun were to look up what does low testosterone cause a person to feel like or what does low estrogen and progesterone cause a person to feel like, you'll see that it often corresponds very nicely with many of the symptoms of the post-acute withdrawal. So part of what we do is some pretty extensive blood work and hormonal testing to see has this person been uh, affected by their drug or alcohol use and now do we need to replenish some hormones or get their body making hormones again do we need to give them vitamin d do we need to give them b vitamins these kinds of things are really important because this can certainly relieve or diminish some of these post-acute withdrawal symptoms and make a person's life much easier in early early recovery the first few months now 
I don't want to go off into another topic, but um, how about the loved ones of the people <laughs> in early recovery? Because many times they're experiencing a lot of symptoms that are just like the person coming off the whatever it was. That's a really good question. It's a little bit different mechanism. So our adrenal glands produce our stress hormone cortisol. The family members are very stressed, and when they're very stressed, cortisol has an action on the loved one's hormones. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how the loved one's hormones get affected. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. In studio today are Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about what to expect in early recovery. Michael, you made a really good point before the break, and that is that many of our family members, our loved ones, um, the concerned people in the life of someone who is newly into recovery or newly into treatment, if you went down this list of hostility or aggression, anxiety, panic, fear, irritability, mood swings, depression, feeling exhausted or fatigued, inability to sleep, trouble concentrating or thinking, loss of interest in sex, anhedonia or an inability to feel pleasure, trouble with memory and sensitivity to stressful situations, 
probably the vast majority of our families would also acknowledge <laughs> that at the same time their loved one may be struggling with what we call post-acute withdrawal. They're having these same kinds of symptoms. Now, sometimes that's because they themselves have recognized, oh, I probably shouldn't drink or smoke or take my pain medicine in the same way that I was doing it before to support my loved ones. So they may actually also be having some actual post-acute withdrawal. But the most common way in which someone's hormones and body get affected is by the cortisol. And this is produced by our adrenal glands. We all have it. We all need it. Cortisol helps regulate our sleep-wake cycle. It helps us regulate our insulin and blood sugar level. It also is supposed to be released in the case of an emergency. The tiger is now chasing you. And so I've got to get out of here. I've got to either run and hide or stay and fight. So cortisol helps me manage that. Cortisol acts like a traffic cop, and it says, okay, we've got to survive the next hour, so we're going to shut down all non-essential services. You don't need to make any hormones because you don't need to reproduce. You don't need to have a good thyroid. You don't need to have any of these other um, important functions right now because you've got to make it through the next hour. Mm Mm-hmm. It shuts down all kinds of um, important metabolic things. Cortisol also stimulates the release of adrenaline. And uh, it affects our memory. It affects our appetite. It affects all kinds of things. And because our family members are going through what they're going through... And in some ways, it's more than the patient because often the patient doesn't remember any of the the bad things that have happened um, uh, or not as clearly as some of the family members. So they are very stressed and they are having these kinds of symptoms. So sometimes the family members also need a workup to see with cortisol so high, what is this doing to your ability to sleep? What is this doing to your weight? What is this doing to your um, hormones? And what kinds of lifestyle and maybe hormonal changes do you need to make in order to also be um, as healthy and as happy as you can be in the recovery? And and one of the reasons I bring this up is just recently we had a a 17-year-old in family group that was talking about many of the things that you just listed. And even though she's 17 and should be thinking about, you know, school and books and boys and all that kind of stuff, here she is thinking about her parent, who she's absolutely terrified Mm -hmm. is going to either relapse or, you know, end up in a bad situation again or, you know, just all these things. And, And I just was sitting there listening to it and thinking, oh, my gosh. You know, this just shows you how the addiction affects everybody in the family. Right. And so while the parent is going through post-acute withdrawal and they're having issues with irritability and um, inability to experience joy and difficulty with motivation in the morning and difficulty with sleep, family members are also going through their own um, cortisol-produced post-acute withdrawal where they're hypervigilant. 
and it can be a, a real triggering time. Um, part of the show we wanted to talk about is cravings and, and the dynamics that can happen between the loved ones and the recovering members is um, the anxiety that, that triggers a lot of cravings. So that's an, uh, that's an important, uh, important thing to, to also recognize is that cravings are a part of what happens for people. Um, as they are in early recovery, but it's not limited to the first few weeks. It's not limited to the detox phase. It's not even limited to the post-acute withdrawal phase. Cravings can pop up years. even years later. Years mm-hmm. and years later. Mm-hmm. Ask um, uh, a former smoker. I was just going to say, <laughs> you know, I haven't smoked for 15 years, but I'd say that you know, at least once a year at some point it clicks into my head, oh my gosh, a cigarette would be great right now. And you have no idea what it's like, where did that come from? Right. So so these kinds of thoughts, um, these kinds of um, remembrances, these kinds of urges can happen even 15 years later. The thought, oh, that would be nice, I'd really like to do that. So how do we define a craving? What is a craving? Um, so, so when I'm talking about it, I'll, I'll say it's a spontaneous desire to go back to something that you've given up or a substance that you've given up, something that you've put down um, that, that you're suddenly, for whatever reason, wanting again. And I usually will talk to patients in terms of a 1 to 10 scale where a one being like this passing thought you hardly notice. You're driving up the street and, and you pass a liquor store and it's like, oh, and you get beyond it and you have totally forgotten about it. And a 10, you are stopped at that parking lot and you're staring at that front door and you're debating with yourself whether or not you sh- you're going to live if you don't go on in there and get it mm-hmm. because the intensity can become that real. Generally, when it's a one or two or a three, they can pretty much manage life, but when it's getting above a five, they're in a, a dangerous situation. And and helping them realize to not try to fight that alone, but to get some support some is is crucial to help them be able to manage those cravings. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we talk about cravings being triggered. That there's something in the person's environment. There's something that happens that reminds them. So that's one of the ways that that cravings get started for somebody is I drive by the liquor store. It's 5 o'clock. Um, I'm having um, a nice evening with my friends who I used to drink with, and they're all starting to drink. And having that memory that they're all starting to drink, right. and you're driving up the road headed towards your house to watch tv or go to a meeting hopefully (laughs) go to a meeting i think it's interesting the difference between the female and male cravings what Mm -hmm. triggers them i believe um you've talked about before where a male is more visual it's a visual trigger whereas a, a female is more emotional it's a more feeling it's a more um something that you can't really look at and 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 somebody else can't see it right 
So the the people, places, and things that we commonly refer to, the places that you used to go, the bar, the country club, the people that you used to drink and party with, your favorite ashtray, your favorite glass, the favorite chair that you used to sit in, those are the things that can trigger for anybody but tend to be much more of a trigger for a man than for a woman. Mm-hmm. Women are often triggered by a mood state, a feeling, a feeling that they usually don't like. Right. Loneliness, sadness, they're bored. Boredom is a big trigger for both everybody both um, genders um, that that feeling of what am I supposed to do with all this time because if you think about it people spend a lot of their day when they've been actively involved with their disease and their disease is active um, finding the substance using the substance or recovering from the substance Mm -hmm. that is a big part of their day and now they've got all this extra time right but they don't know how to to fill it the the truth is that boredom is Mm -hmm. like a huge huge key because when you're first newly sober you just you have all this time and you have absolutely no idea how to use it or get through it or be happy. Right. And you often don't have a network of people that understand what you're going through that can be supportive in a healthy way and aren't saying, oh, come on, you're so much better. Let's just have one more drink. You can handle one drink. Mm -hmm. So part of what I, I also think is important is that cravings are different based on the substance. Absolutely. Yes. Cravings Good point. for alcohol tend to be much more subtle. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more like, oh, I wonder how Bob, my favorite bartender, is doing. I haven't seen him in a week, so I probably should just drop by and, and see if hello. he's working and say hello and just and I'll have reconnect. Water or Coke. And it'll be fine. And I can watch the game. Mm-hmm. Be fine. Because that's the only place where they're really showing the game. To, to watch and so the, the, it's a much more subtle process mm-hmm. whereas a cocaine craving is it's it, more triggered it hits your I mean, brain it's like a boom yeah and cocaine cravings and sex cravings tend to hit your brain and your that becomes the only thing your brain can think about and it goes from zero to, to ten um, in, in the blink of an eye mm-hmm. and it's physiologic people feel it mm-hmm. that the desire to um, to engage the desire to go find it right now mm-hmm. that that part of the compulsion is what makes some particular drugs really dangerous now it's dangerous with alcohol mm-hmm. because it's everywhere it's legal it's readily available so that's the challenge for that person who's Alcohol is their primary struggle. And and that's I think, you know, you're you're explaining it really great because if it's all over the place, you can it can be a lot more subtle. Right. You know, oh I, I'm handling it fine right now, so I can get closer to it and handle it fine. I can get closer and handle it fine and, and then boom. But it's subtle. It's subtle. Some of the other drugs, like methamphetamine, like cocaine, like sex, like heroin, these the, the physiological changes that a person experiences are profound, and that urge, that 
immediacy immediacy is really difficult. And it's interesting because they will have, if, if it's not an option, they won't have physical cravings or emotional cravings. But the instant it becomes an option, they will hit um, full force. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about how to deal with cravings and how to survive post-acute withdrawal. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and Medical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. It changes. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlantis Healing Center have joined me, and we've been talking about what to expect in early recovery. And we've talked about the length of time being two years. We've talked about the difference between acute withdrawal and detox. Um, and the fact that you can have withdrawal even from non-addictive medications like antidepressants. We've talked about uh, what post-acute withdrawal looks like and how sometimes hormones and our stress hormone in particular can have a role not just for the patient but for their loved ones as well. Right before the break, we were talking about cravings and what they are and how they um, affect people, how they can be different depending on the substance used, um, and how they can be different between men and women. These kinds of things um, can be really difficult, and people can struggle. So what do we tell people to do? We tell them to, one, remind themselves that this is just a normal part of the recovery process 
and that cravings will pass. Um, if you don't sit there and just really focus on your craving, it will tend to pass in five or ten minutes. A good addict can really focus on it and dwell on it and keep it going mm-hmm. and make it last for hours. Or days. Or days. <clears throat> um, call somebody and get out of your head by talking to somebody else, either either letting them know that you're in this really dangerous place or by being there and being available to help them. Um, both of those will work, depending on what side where you're at at the time. And I think also making sure that you're avoiding vulnerable situations unless you absolutely have to have the situation. Mm -hmm. And I know plenty of people that say, oh, I don't mind if my family member has alcohol in the house. I don't mind that at all. And they'll, I've seen people go fine for five or six years. And then one night, they're home alone, and boom, they're, they're drinking that wine. That isn't even their alcohol of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, there are going to be events in your life that sometimes you have to go to that may involve um, exposure to drugs or alcohol. Um, you may have to have surgery. You may have to have anesthesia. There may be a time where you would have to take pain medicine. So as much as you can avoid having these difficult situations that can provide all of the reminders um, of what it used to be like, um, that's really important. But if you have to go to the wedding, if you have to take the business trip, if you have to have surgery or anesthesia, it's really important that you think about that and that you make a recovery plan and that you have involved as many people in trying to make sure that you're safe during this um, situation and that you check in with your addiction professionals, that you have included them in the discussion and problem-solved ways in which you can avoid the triggers and avoid the cravings and hopefully very much avoid the relapse. Right. I think in particular, if your drug of choice is opiates and you have a situation where you have to have surgery or you have a broken bone or some illness where you are going to be exposed to opiates, it is going to reactivate the disease of addiction. So knowing that and including your addictionologist and your mm-hmm. therapist to help you manage it after the after the circumstance is over with... Um, one of the one of the articles that I read recently um, was talking about the difference between medication and drug use, and, and this author was kind of implying that if you're taking medication as prescribed, you're going to be okay. And I just want to take issue that if you're an opiate addict, it is still going to activate the disease of addiction, and but, you can't go it alone. But I think that even other folks that have a different type of addiction initially who don't really have cravings or anything going on but they break their ankle they get opiates and all of a sudden the opiates are are you know getting taken away i guess you would say mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're like craving alcohol right yeah i mean anytime I mean, it it's going to make you vulnerable right regardless because again it's not the 
it's, substance. And it surprises so many people. It's, the, it's your brain. Mm-hmm. So thinking about it, having that discussion uh, before you leave a treatment center, having that discussion with um, family members, with people in your recovery groups, really important because any one of us can end up, knock on wood, I'm not putting that to the universe, but um, any one of us could end up in the emergency room. Absolutely. Um, and so knowing what kinds of medications might be safe, uh, what kinds of medications to take if I have a cold, what do I do if I've got a cough? Many times people aren't aware that there are over-the-counter medications that have similar um, ingredients that may not be an opioid, but dextromethorphan is very close to an opioid, and it can activate the opioid receptors, the pain medicine receptors. So you have to be conscious and vigilant in order to reduce um, your your risks. We can't eliminate them. Real life is real life, and sometimes it's a song on the radio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's um, uh, a, a smell that you haven't smelled for a while, like nicotine, like tobacco um, burning. Those kinds of things we can't prepare for, but we can prepare for what to do if we're having cravings, having thoughts, or having a compulsion to use. Um, the the other suggestion that we, we have with people is to really have a very clear image of the their bottom, yes. of where their disease took them. So if, if you have a DUI, if you have a fender bender, to have that real image in your brain of this is, if I take this drink, that's what's likely going to happen. Um, as as one of the means of really not ending back up in that position. Or worse. Or worse. And we call that playing the tape through, although these days most young people don't, don't know, know what, what a, a tape, tape is. is. <laughs> so we, we have to update our lingo, but the idea of, yes, right now that seems really good, I think I can handle it, but I thought that before, and this is where I ended up, and this is what it cost me, and this is what it's going to cost me if I go back there again. Um, That can often give the person enough pause, and I don't mean that in terms of post-acute withdrawal um, syndrome, which we also call pause, but give them that little space and time to rethink it and to figure out a way to not act on the thought. Right. So one of the things that sometimes happens, particularly in early recovery, but not necessarily just in early recovery, are using dreams. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I first stopped drinking, it really surprised me. One night, I think I was like 40 days sober, mm-hmm. and I had this dream, and it was honestly, I, I, I woke up, mm-hmm. and I had to... You know, reenact, think about the night before I started sleeping because I was convinced almost that I had drank. I, I hadn't, but it was this dream was so real mm-hmm. that it had me just completely wigged out. And my sponsor said, Oh, that's very common. <laughs> that's just a using dream. Yeah, everybody has use. them. That's an addict. <laughs> <laughs> and many people do have them, and sometimes. Um, that they can be very scary. I've had people wake up and 
say they they're looking around for the bottles mm-hmm. or for the cans yeah. or th- the pills or the needles or whatever. Um, sometimes and people are horrified and scared. Sometimes I've had people talk about getting high in the dream and waking up and having really bad cravings mm-hmm. because they did have the experience of actually using. So they can affect Even though they didn't. Even though they didn't, correct. Um, Our brain has great ability to recall the euphoria. And that's one of the problems with a craving is you don't remember how bad it got unless you're actively walking down that pathway. You remember how good Good. it was. Right. Um, Those times that it was good, it was very, very good. So um, uh, using dreams are not uncommon, but a study that was done recently at um, Massachusetts General Hospital was able to link the idea that if you're having using dreams, you may have a more severe form of the disease of addiction and that it's certainly something that you need to talk about. Now, I'm always asking patients about dreams, and I know they think I'm some sort of weirdo who just wants to interpret their dreams, and I really am a weirdo, but I don't want to interpret their dreams. No, I'm trying to see, are you sleeping normally? Are you going into rapid eye movement sleep, having a return of normal sleep patterns? But I'm also interested, are you having using dreams? Because often people don't think about, they really need to talk about it. Because unconsciously, you may be thinking, you may, your brain and body may be concerned and may really want to um, use. to use. And it's such a common phrase in treatment centers and recovery meetings all over the place, using dreams, using dreams, but there's really no studies on it. So don't be afraid of the first two years, but expect them. Do all the reading you can, and we will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.